This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the studio tonight by Will Cox. G'day, how are you doing? I'm good. Good. We, uh, we've seen some films this week. <laughs> Like every week. Yeah, every week. <laughs> I, we watched a lot of them. Yeah, we do. so many of them. Can't keep up. <laughs> so on tonight's show, we'll be speaking with writer and director Kitty Green about her latest release, The Royal Hotel, starring Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick as backpackers working in a remote Aussie pub who must navigate an exploitative and often toxic workplace during, uh, along with an unruly cohort of locals. And later, we're going to review a film that apparently is the maximum length of time the average person can tolerate viewing a film without a break uh, before feeling uncomfortable in the seat or starting to think that the film is dragging. It's Sir Ridley Scott's 2.5-hour biopic, Napoleon. Flies by. Yeah, which is all about the rise and fall of the French emperor, sulkily played by Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, so stay tuned. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, many listeners will recall Kitty Green's 2019 film The Assistant, uh, a powerful exploration of gender politics and sexual harassment in the workplace told through a day in the life of an assistant to a Hollywood executive. Written and directed by Kitty Green, the film detailed not only how the film industry dealt with sexual predators, but how this behaviour was enabled by those around them. Now, in her latest release, The Royal Hotel, Green returns to the mechanisms of a toxic workplace in which abuse, misogyny and exploitation fester in small but very significant ways, this time in a remote outback pub. Julia Garner and Jessica Hanwick star as backpacking friends Hannah and Liv, who, after too much partying on booze cruises through Sydney Harbour, pick up work at a regional pub in a desolate mining town. Here they meet pub owner Billy, played by Hugo Weaving, and the stern but kind-hearted Carol, played by Ursula Jovic. Uh, They also meet an unruly assortment of locals who test their boundaries with the newcomers. It is my great pleasure to now welcome the writer and director of the Royal Hotel, Kitty Green. Kitty, welcome to Primal Screen. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And now we spoke together back in 2019 for the release of The Assistant. And there's a lot of narrative threads shared with that film and The Royal Hotel. Notably, both films are drawn from real life. The Assistant, you interviewed uh, people from the Weinstein office uh, and Miramax Studios, as well as women working in um, the agencies outside of the film industry. And I understand that you were inspired to make The Royal Hotel after watching Pete Gleason's documentary, uh, the 2016 film Hotel Coolgardi. Um, what was it about Gleason's doco that prompted um, that response from you? Um, I think, I mean, I always, I, you know, I was on a jury, a film jury, actually, and I was watching a bunch of docs and there was a point where I came across Hotel Coolgardi and I thought, there's something about it, I, something about what's looking at the Australian sort of outback and the Australian drinking culture, like through the eyes of two foreign women, two young women as well, which I hadn't, I kind of hadn't seen uh, like our drinking culture represented that way. 
um, I thought it was an interesting way in to look at some of the rules and of the game and how someone negotiates those spaces. And for me, it kind of lined up. It had everything I was kind of interested in. And I, I knew that I could have Julia, who I, was, I worked with on the assistant, Julia Garner, play the lead role. So there's something about going, oh, okay, I can see how this fits together that made me want to do it. Yeah, I, I was very happy to see uh, Julia return in the lead for the Royal Hotel. She did such an amazing performance in The Assistant and really occupying quite a different space for this film, which I'm sure we'll get into. Now, in Hotel Kugadi, the doco captures the changeover between these barmaids um, with these two new ones replacing the two that were leaving after their three-month tenure or, or something like that. Now, the hotel at the centre of your film, the namesake of your film, is um, this kind of quite a rowdy affair um, in which we see both these transitory workers um, and local suppliers exploited by the pub owner, Billy. I understand that this is the first ever feature film to shoot in the town of Yatina. What was the, yeah. <laughs> was, was this like Royal Hotel itself? Was that also drawn from real life? Is there a pub that this is based on? Um, I mean, not really. I mean, it has its roots in the documentary, I guess, but we, we really made it our own. We, we The way we kind of looked at turning it into a screenplay, I guess, was sort of we watched this documentary and then myself, Oscar Redding, the co-writer, just sort of swallowed it essentially and then tried to kind of just write our own story based on our own experiences, kind of using that as like kind of the, the bones of the of the piece. But then, yeah, we found this pub in – it's Yatina, I think. Or there's Yatina, kind of a, sorry. A bit of a fight over whether it's Yatina or Yatina. <laughs> so, but, you know, um, people say both. But, yeah, it was a tiny town, 29 people, a few hours north of Adelaide where we were going to shoot um, some of the interior spaces. Uh, yeah, it was such a, it was the first pub we came across and had the weirdest vibe. It was the strangest place. And so immediately we were like, okay, this is for us. And I think it's sort of, I don't know, yeah, it's something, it kind of all came together in that moment, I guess. Yeah, it's a beautiful two-story in the middle of nowhere. There was supposed to be a railway track um, in front of it that was never built. So right. it's an abandoned pub essentially, which was great because we could really take it over and make it our own. And I was thinking a lot about the transitory nature of this kind of bar work that's so often done by backpackers and people on the margins of society. How did that play into when you were writing the story, that kind of that set up creating the potential for exploitation? I mean, it's definitely in there. It's not something I think we discussed. It's not like... It really kind of happens quite quickly that they lose their money and they end up out there. To, to me, kind of, it was like once we get to that pub, that's when kind of the drama really ratchets up. So it was sort of something that sort of touched on and discussed, but I guess it's not really – if that was sort of the direction I was really heading, I probably would have lent more into it. But it was kind of more more like their the space and then they're kind of trying to understand the rules and trying to make sense of this um, culture, I guess, was kind of mm. more like kind of – my focus, I guess. Well, talking of spaces, so much of your filmography and you've worked across both fiction film and documentary, but it, it so often focuses on uncomfortable spaces, um, whether that is toxic workplaces or high-pressure sports or radical gender politics. And it's clear that you do a tremendous amount of research in your filmmaking process. What's it like for you to sit with those storylines and those spaces? Um. I don't know. I feel like when I'm making work, I kind of gravitate towards things that make me feel uncomfortable, maybe because you can kind of chew on them a little more and f figure out why and unpick them. And I guess that end up, ends up where I want to be, which is awful because it's, it's such an uncomfortable place to fit, sit in, especially for so long because it takes three years to make a movie. But yeah, there's something about it. The fear is sort of probably what drives me, as wild as that sounds. The fear? Um, there's something about trying to, 
Yeah, I guess in a way it's like kind of like unpacking my own fear and looking at, and also, I mean, I think a lot of the time, both the assistant and the Royal are about kind of little moments and things that as a woman in those spaces, I've often Mm -hmm. experienced, but I'm not sure some of the blokes around me have seen or been aware of, or, and it's sort of of picking up on microaggressions and sort Mm. of amplifying them or um, things like that. I I find really interesting. And that's something that I've got this ability to do with a close up and a Mm. camera, you know, that can kind of show this side of society, I guess show these sort of my view on things that probably wouldn't normally be seen or out there in a way or exposed that way. Let's tuck into the cast that you've got telling these stories because it really is exceptional. We mentioned um, Julia Garner before and there's a really beautiful relationship, um, a friendship between Garner's Hannah and Jessica Henwick as Liv. It reminded me a lot of some of the close female friendships that particularly marked my my 20s, my early 20s, when you're trying to navigate those spaces like we were talking about where you do feel unsafe um, and they're often very uncomfortable or sometimes dangerous for young women. Um, How did you go about casting Jessica Henwick and, and did you work with them to build this chemistry or was this connection there from the start? I mean, that was the real trick because I knew, I mean, I knew we were, I was writing something for Julia. So I knew that she would be in it. And, and then it was trying to figure out, well, who is her best friend? And it's like a bunch of things that happened during, you know, from first draft to last draft as to where those characters ended up on how they, so it sort of changes as you go. But ultimately I was looking for someone who would fit in with Julia and I and who would become a nice, like we wanted, we were going to expand our duo to a trio essentially. So it was like, well, who will, who will work? Who will feel excluded? Who can we kind of accept in? And feels like our people in a way. Um, and I did a bunch of, yeah, I, I think I did a lot of research as to who I wanted to work with, but it was really about a personality thing. And I think Jess immediately is, was goofy and friendly and fun and weird and grounded in a way that some of those Hollywood stars aren't. So I knew she would kind of fit in and it, I knew her and Julia would get along and thank God they really did. So it was really um wonderful because they're really you know they're stuck together out there for six weeks or whatever so true needed to get yeah. along, which is great yeah and I, I love um, but how, yeah so it worked out well and I love how the two women really occupy quite different spaces you were talking before about sometimes it's hard to know is this a real threat is it a joke where where am I am I overreacting and I thought that they both occupy maybe even two mindsets of the same person and and how we make sense of it and we can't talk about this without mentioning Toby Wallace as Maddie and, and Daniel Henshaw as Dolly, both of whom are leads in uh, Thomas M. Wright's astounding 2018 film, Acute Misfortune. Uh, so really interesting casting there. And I think much like Wright's film, you underscore a lot of their brand of masculinity or their, their performance of masculinity through humour. And there's, there's a liminality there as well with that kind of thread of violence that's delivered as a joke and I think as women um, it's very hard sometimes to act on our instincts because we've been fed that line of um, you know it's just a joke and I wondered how you discussed or opened up that that question of liminality with Wallace and Henschel. Hmm. I must say back to the girl sorry I didn't really yeah. answer what you were saying earlier was that I felt like that dynamic where one's a little looser, one's a little, one's in control of the money and the worrying about that, and one's a little looser. Felt like very natural. Like it's sort of the dynamic that ha- happened whenever I track backpacked with a friend. It ends up somebody has yes. to take charge, you know. So that felt pretty natural. <laughs> the boys, um, yeah. I mean, it was an interesting casting thing. We really wanted some great. We wanted just good people who were good to, you know, because we needed the people that understood how sensitive the material was, who understood that when you call cut. It, the joke's over, you know, and it's it's back to, you know, we're, we're back to work and kind of like, and could create sort of a warm atmosphere and environment for those women. 
so that was really important. So I think we kind of that was the first thing is who are these who who are the good guys out there, and how can we make sure we bring them in? And I think once you get the right people, they who understand the material, it sort of it all becomes very easy. You know what I mean? When they get what we're saying and what we're trying to say, mm. then you don't have to really walk them through step by step. You can kind of just they really are really intuitive, both of them in the way they work and. They're both really incredible actors and they brought so much to these roles and so much love for these broken men, you know, which was really wonderful and special. And just on the male actors, so Henschel and Wallace, um, I'm just curious because uh, you touched upon this a little bit before, but this question of enablers, you know, there's broken men in this film, there's men who are suffering, who are cared for, Um, there are men who seem like protectors but maybe there's something else going on there there's lots of different people and connections in this film and there's some lovely moments and very tender moments and there's also this threat that Hannah feels and she's particularly reactive uh, in this film and I just wondered about when you're talking about working with Wallace and, and Henshaw just the role of silence because you wrote the script as well um you wrote it with Oscar Reading, yeah. Reading, sorry, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and so what was that part of it? Was was silence something that you were hoping to use? Because you, you, both the assistant and the Royal Hotel use silence in really interesting ways, particularly in relation to yeah. whether we choose to speak up. Yeah, I mean, we, in this one it was particularly important. It, I mean, a lot of it was about Julia's character finding her voice and the, figuring out when she was allowed to say no, when she was allowed to speak up. And so... Silence for her was really important. With the men, I mean, this is very – the assistant was about everything that's not being said in that mm. office. And this one, the royal is about everything that's being said and trying to, like, sort through that and filter through <laughs> that and go, well, which of these are jokes and which of these are threats and is this threat real or is this – what is this, you know, and trying to kind of, yeah, again, navigate that and figure out, yeah, and just especially someone who's foreign and who culturally is just so unaware of what what's what, um, mm. it becomes a real kind of – mind game you know for julia's character which was a lot of fun to play um but yeah the boy i mean all of them are enabling this cult like that's sort of kind of the culture is is the Mm. fact that these guys are letting these jokes go and no one's speaking up and no one's sort of mentioning it like and julia's afraid to mention her discomfort and i guess that's what we were trying to do is prompt a conversation about well when can we admit that these spaces are starting to feel unsafe Mm. and how can we stop them from escalating into violence and sexual violence and getting to that point and how can we kind of cut it off a little earlier by mm. speaking up? And Michael Latham was your cinematographer the, for the assistant and um, you work with him again for the Royal Hotel. It feels like space is being used so differently in these two films. For the assistant, there was this permanent grey kind of fluorescent lighting, the glow of the photocopiers, um, lots of repetitive corridors, lot, very boxed in. And whereas the Royal Hotel has this wonderful vastness of the outback, which is also terrifying. You touched upon some of the horror elements of the hotel as well as a space. How did you work through how to use space to create this sense of tension? Because it's definitely there. A few things going on with this one because like the interiors are so claustrophobic and dark and there's a tension in that but also when you step outside there's nothing around Mm. which is the kind of the opposite but also just as terrifying so it was kind of fun playing around with those spaces and how different they can feel but yet how threatening they can kind of both feel at the same time so I don't know we had a lot of fun I worked with Leah Popple who's a production designer who was awesome who built that interior bar from scratch because we couldn't afford to keep the crew out in the bush for five weeks so we had to build the interior of that space in the studio and she 
pulled it off. It looks so, like really lived in and really loved. And yeah, she did, did such an amazing job. I'm such a fan of Leah. Yeah, so. It's tremendous. And so much happens in that space as, you know, you're really mm-hmm. economical with using everything there. And it makes sense that that is where you have these interactions, you have these awkward conversations. And in fact, the outback, like we mentioned before, that's almost like a little break from that. They'll have these moments of reprieve where things are happening, but just in such different ways. And you've also got Jed Palmer again, creating a wonderfully unnerving score. And he composed the score for your earlier film, Ukraine is Not a Brothel. Um, What's your working relationship with Palmer? Is Is the score something that is being created once the film is complete or is this is he involved earlier on in the writing process oh, i think with jed we almost started with the jukebox and figuring out what was going to be playing in that space and wow. there was a lot of tracks we wrote into that film that were in the script there's mm. kylie minogue and there's a few things in there that they touch on as they're kind of learning about australian you know culture in that way but yeah and then we wanted to figure out what was playing in those scenes and what and so kind of jed and i started combing through tracks and figuring out what was on um and then it's about filling spaces where there isn't something playing it's about well how can we kind of ratchet tension up i don't really like a lot of score i feel like it's emotionally manipulative at times and a lot of this film exists in julia's head like am i in danger am i not and i think a score would give something away or something Mm. the filmmakers hand away a little so i'm always pulling jed back saying less less let's (laughs) figure out how to make it really like he does these beautiful, beautiful kind of works and compositions, but it's sort of about kind of really just playing that line. We're not sure if it's is it sound design, is it score? What sort of what is this? And but it somehow plays with tension. It kind of the way it works is it sort of sort of just gets in subliminally, kind of just really kind of makes everything a little more terrifying. Somehow. Oh, <laughs> so a lot of that work was in that. Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely got yeah, under yeah. my skin. I um, yeah, cool. I think this is a tremendous film, and I'm very excited to see how audiences will respond. It is in cinemas at the moment. Kitty, what's what's next on the cards for you? Oh man, I don't know. I just got through this one. <laughs> just trying to survive. Yeah, um, need a break. yeah, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> off and then I'll dive into the next thing for sure. Well, I look forward to seeing what you create next. The Royal Hotel is playing now at select cinemas around the country. Thank you so much for your time, Kitty. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Lovely to chat. My pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And it's now time for our first review of the night. What is your name? Napoleon. The course of my life just changed. Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? You think you're great? You are just a tiny little brute. That is nothing without me. All of Europe is uniting forces against me. What's the outcome of this if you don't succeed? Majesty, we are discovered. Good. It's a trap! I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. So dramatic. This is uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. Sir, Sir Ridley Scott. So, oh, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Sorry, what's the get point? Right, what's the point of getting a knighthood if community radio in Melbourne aren't yeah. honouring it? Okay, so 18th, 19th century France. I'm sure people know the story of Dubois. Surely. Look, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not Doctor History or anything. I'm not particularly au fait with this stuff. But okay, so here's here's the rundown. Marie Antoinette's head has just rolled off the guillotine. A young army officer, Napoleon Bonaparte, played here by Joaquin Phoenix, begins an ascent to the upper echelons of command and rolls his war machine across Europe whilst pining for his wife, Josephine, played by Vanessa Kirby. It's a a sweeping decades-long epic full of sumptuous visuals, great character actors and some genuinely funny bits. (laughs) Critics are divided... Unless they're French critics, in which case <laughs> the they, is they unanimously on, yeah. hate it, which is, you know, that's I'm very happy for them yeah, uh, to be actually, yeah. united on this. Yeah. I, there's a great um, article in The Guardian by a French person explaining why they didn't like it. Oh, um, dear. One, I mean, should we... It's a biopic, but there's a lot of historical inaccuracies. Oh, I mean, we mentioned look. you mentioned the the guillotine scene with Marie Antoinette, and they cut to Napoleon looking on. Uh, he wasn't there. Oh, uh, I'm sure he wasn't there. <laughs> I mean, that's one of many inaccuracies throughout this 2.45 hour film. There's so much to say about the historical inaccuracies, and I have lots to say. Mm. There's going to directly conflict with things that I said last week about Saltburn, but <laughs> I don't care. Um, so critics hate. Well, French critics hate it. Did you hate it? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, that's a good question. Mixed. I'm I'm like the critics. I am mixed. So things I hated. I'm not a fan of 2.5 hour runtime. Uh, it is too long, personally. And also for a film that is 2.5 hours long, there's not a whole lot of shifts in his character, right. and which is such a shame because he's such a fascinating historical figure. Okay. It feels as though there's a whole wealth of what you could do with that. Things I did love. Love some of those battle scenes. I think Mm -hmm. that Scott is a masterful visual storyteller and there were some battle scenes that really stood out to me as really interestingly captured. I don't remember if you watched the film The King from a few years back. I'm blanking on the director's name. I want to say David Michaud. Anyhow, I might need to look that up. But kind of captured a bit of that essence for me in some of those battle scenes where just very well thought through and really captured how difficult it would have been at that time. I'm not saying it was quite up to the standard of what I took from The King, which I really did genuinely enjoy. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. It was pretty lukewarm on Napoleon. Um, I mentioned Runtime before. I won't go on about this too much, but this is actually the cut down version. There's going to be a four hour director's cut that will be released on Apple TV. Oh, we don't need that. Yeah. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with the runtime. I actually really liked it. I don't have a strong uh, track record with historical drama. It's not really my um, area. I don't really like it when critics jump straight into professing their ignorance, but this is just so not my subject area. And I don't, I'm going to sound very stupid. I don't follow a lot of the historical detail in here. When battles happen, I enjoy looking at them and then I just sort of sink into it and let it happen and work out what's happening. I think that's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's different on. layers to it. And that's the thing with biopics. Yeah. You can go into it and know absolutely nothing, but the film can take you on a ride and you can feel like, yeah. okay, yeah. I actually like I got into that space or I learnt a lot from it. There's always that thing. There's mm. the tendency where you're like, let's dig in and see how much of this is real afterwards. Oh, yeah. Um, It's kind of the nature of the genre. I felt the character, I mean, no, as you said, and I agree with you that the character didn't really develop over the course of the film. He kind of just stays a bit sulky. I really like that (laughs) static 
character. Okay. Um, and I thought the whole thing was very funny. I thought um, people were a lot of people were laughing. Was I was hilarious. in a packed IMAX. It's a and, comedy. Yeah, a lot of being, chuckles. It's not being sold as one. If you listen to that <laughs> clip, which was extremely dramatic, you mm. would not know that it's a comedy. But it's very funny. Yeah, Queen Phoenix is playing it comedy, and everybody else is playing it pretty straight. Joaquin Phoenix is a very interesting choice. Of course, you know he's he's kind of like the Dyla weirdo, isn't he? Like Dyla, um, <laughs> um, we're talking about him being the king of the incels last week. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because of Joker. I I love Joaquin Phoenix. I feel as though he's an interesting choice because we know that he can do period films. We saw him in Gladiator, wonderfully creepy in that. I feel as though with this there's a real modern um, mannerisms to Mm. the way in which he delivers some of his lines, which adds to a lot of the humour. And the the hat that he wears, Mm. the iconic So much Hat so comedy. Much, there's so much hat comedy. Who knew that a hat could be such a draw card for some very funny moments? It's Chaplin-level th- stuff. It's Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> it really is. And I do love Phoenix's physicality on screen in being this kind of awkward man. I just found maybe maybe I just didn't get the joke. Maybe I wasn't in on the joke. Well, do you oh. think that Riddles himself has intended this as a comedy? Sorry, you, you corrected me <laughs> earlier and you wanted me to use his, his sir. Sir Riddles. And now he's Riddles to yeah. you. Um, yeah, he's in on it. I'm very yeah? put out by some of the, the comments saying like, you know, sometimes it even feels like a comedy and, and it's unintentionally funny, maybe. It's like, no, I think it's very intentionally funny. And I know that... Um, can I just talk a little bit about the, the historical inaccuracies? Yeah, go um, for it. I found this great quote that was floating oh. around. And it was actually... <laughs> can I read that on the air? It's got some... Um, some language warning. If, some, um, some fruity got, language in yeah, it. Yeah, if you don't like bad words or you've got young children around... Yes. Dial it. Well, yeah, just, don't, yeah, just, just for warn a second. them that Ridley Scott is about to hold forth. Okay, so this was shared by an historian on Twitter who was angry about the historical inaccuracies in Ridley Scott's Napoleon. And this is a quote from him from an interview. He said, when I have issues with historians, I ask, excuse me, mate, were you there? No? Well, shut the fuck up then. And <laughs> Surely that's got to go on the poster. I was. Oh, it's a better tagline than the one they went with, which yeah, makes no that? sense. Legend, uh, it- master... The one, the one that I'm talking Icon? about is um, it's he came like from that. he came from nothing. He conquered everything. That's well, he didn't right. come from nothing. He's from like an aristocratic <laughs> family, and the film doesn't have anything about him coming from nothing. Also, it doesn't the, make any sense. The poster, just as a side note, I love getting into film poster design. It's not a great poster. No, it's, for a film of this scale of of these kind of big names involved with it, um, for what they're hoping to achieve, it really is a quite a lackluster poster. No. I didn't even realize it was on a, the bus stop near me. Until they yeah. don't, they don't know how to sell this film. No, they're very and, confused and very empty. And that's what I think I I didn't like about this film. There's so much material to work with, and a big focus of this film is the relationship that he has with Josephine. Yeah, and um, you mentioned before that Vanessa Kirby, Vanessa of course, Kirby, yeah. who plays Josephine Bonaparte. Their relationship is fascinating, and we played that clip before that had a little bit of that power play, and there is it touches upon it. But I would have maybe liked for them to go further because Ridley Scott perhaps didn't do that much research. I think he didn't read anything apparently about Bonaparte before making this this film. I I applaud this. They touch upon the fact, my theory, okay, my theory, just to jump back. My theory is that Ridley Scott created this entire film based on just hearing what Bonaparte's final three words were. And I won't ruin the spoiler if people don't know it, but it's the final frame basically. (laughs) And it made me think, 
I feel like that's the only three words that really Scott has read about Bonaparte because there's the potential for this to be a really fascinating relationship on screen to unpack this power dynamic. But they don't really do enough. I think enough he does. With it. I think they you totally think so? do. Yeah. I wanted to see more then. Vanessa Kirby's such an amazing actor. I feel like. A oh, lot she's of, great. Yeah. And she has this moment right from the start where she sees his absurdity in a way that other people perhaps don't. Mm. She sees him as an, a figure of the ridiculous and goes with that and is quite endeared by that from the start. You and know? she has got a, her own sort of power in this as well. No, you don't want to dig into the historical inaccuracies. But I just, do. Okay, but, but there's, there's well, the plot holes as well. She has a kid at the start. And then where does that kid go? We never see that kid again. Well, she's, she's a <laughs> member of the French aristocracy. It's, I mean, probably it's with, with a nanny, I'm sure. Okay. I don't, she's yeah, not a single a mum. strange. Is she not though? Well, I mean, well, technically, yes. But it's not. that means something different to you or I. You know? Okay. I just thought maybe that was a feature. <clears throat> I, uh, I think my point about the historical inaccuracies in that slightly spicy quote that I read out before, he's, he has a point. This isn't a, an historical document. He's in a completely different game to historians. Mm. If you're watching this film to learn about the true facts of the life of Napoleon, you, you're looking in the wrong place. <laughs> I mean, who... Honestly, watches an historical drama for accuracy, especially in a story where there are already countless uh, books and films. Uh, this is a way of telling a story. And I'm aware that people might have been listening in last week and heard me complain that the soundtrack on Saltburn was sometimes several months out of sync with the time period. And I make no apologies for this no, massive inconsistency. No, double down, double down. Okay, well, he did say, Ridley Scott did say, were you there? No, well, shut up then. Well, I was there in 2007. Yeah, so that I was listening to that album and I bought that album. We know what didn't yeah, know I didn't know. Yeah, I know exactly what month that one came out. Can but, I just, just on that though, yeah. maybe some of the rage from this is coming from the fact that Kubrick was initially the, he, he wrote a script for a Napoleon film and, and Scott read that script. So Kubrick, we know, is just one of the most fastidious researchers. Yeah. He had an entire room dedicated to Napoleon research. Okay. He's that level. So I feel like as a film fan, you imagine what that film could have been if it had been Kubrick had made it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, obviously it would have been a better film if Stanley Kubrick had made it. Yeah. But, but, you I'm know, just saying that that level of detail, yeah. it'd be fantastic to see that on screen. I know. Yeah, it would. But look, there's a different film. This is a different film. It is film, a different film. You know? You're right. You're and right. And I think if you're watching this film and thinking the weather wasn't like that at the Battle of Waterloo <laughs> or even one of my favourite bits, he didn't really shoot a cannon at the pyramids. That's that been, bit's wrong. That's been tweeted a lot. <laughs> I mean, of course that's wrong. You know, they also didn't look like that. They weren't all speaking with American accents. And I don't know what to tell you this is a fictional film it's also very funny you know as i said phoenix is playing as a comedy i I think he's actually playing as a muppet yes amongst a human cast well there's some truly muppet-like behavior yeah well (laughs) particularly the sex scenes there's the sex scenes which are extremely muppet-like there's the hat comedy which we've gone into a little bit and the greatest line in the film um, among all this heightened period drama, you know what I'm going to say? I know. The heightened period drama dialogue when Phoenix shouts, You think you're so great just because you have boats. It's very funny. Now, that should have been on the poster. Yeah, that should have been that on the poster. That would have sold it for me. In bright pink. Yeah. You know, like yeah. this is the film that you look at. Yeah. This is a revisionist, this ridiculous look. Yeah. At, it actually feels a lot like Barry Lyndon, like Stanley yeah. Kubrick's Barry Lyndon to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an absurd thing. I think that's you know? a great comparison, actually. And perhaps if they had leaned into it even more, that would have been cohesive and, and really well done. I don't know. What did you think about the battle scenes? Because that was my favourite part of this film. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the Were battle, you into them? The battle at the end. 
I do. <laughs> Great historian Shall Wilcox, man about town. The battle historian. at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we call it the Battle of Waterloo? I don't want to go too far into the weeds of history here. Yeah, neither is beautifully done. Was some of that historically accurate? I honestly have oh. no idea. Look, I don't know. I wasn't there, but <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> Isn't that always going to be the argument now? One one thing that I did find that sat a bit uneasy with me. So you have 2.5 hours of battles being presented. You know, yeah, there's a bit of grit and mud and things like that. And there's obviously a whole lot of horses and people who are killed. But they're, you know, for the whole part, presented as these victories and these, you know, triumphant wins. But then at the end, there's this sort of like, this many people died. And I was like, well, that wasn't the film I watched. Like the film I watched didn't really seem to care the whole lot about how many people were you know, dead on the on the field. <laughs> no, because he doesn't. Because he sees them yeah, as but great. Do you think horns. it's weird to include that? Like some I stats thought it was at a the great end? thing to include. Why? Because we see, you know, we see it all as this great chess game across Europe. You know, mm. and these ridiculous staged battles and like forcing those uh, people onto the lake and then shooting the cannons at the lake. Mm. It's the strategy. That was side fantastic. Of it. That was the very strategy interesting. side's really quite interesting. But and then the, don't. I don't th- then I think adding in this line about, oh, this many people died, I'm like... I liked that. I mm, thought okay. at the end of all of that, when we're just seeing these CGI little plasticine people falling into the lake, dying, horses getting killed, mm. whatever, and at the end says, by the way, that was 2.5 million people. Yeah, you know, yeah okay. I think, maybe, uh, there was maybe. a bit of a, a draw of breath in the cinema. When, mm. I, when I saw it. There, was, there wasn't... There was Well, maybe there was, not I... Uh, <laughs> there, something else. He'd left already. He had already left. <laughs> no, um, something else. Napoleon, and I, I'm not trying to re- return too much to historical fact, but even within the story that is being told in Scott's version, he's meant to be this charismatic figure. He's meant to be some a man who comes in, the soldiers are basically throwing themselves to mm. return back to battle. They um, follow him with not even, you know, there's this real loyalty to him. Yeah. But I didn't really see why. Now, I got why Josephine was attracted to him and maybe it would have been a better film if it focused more on that relationship mm. and developed that. And even I feel like there was an element of kink there that would have been fantastic to see on screen and really explore. And he could have had complete creative license with that. I just found it was strange that as a character, regardless of whether you're going for a historical or just the story that Scott is telling, I didn't get from Phoenix, who is masterful actor, enough of that sense of charisma Mm. at all. Mm. I don't know. How did Uh, you feel about it? Well, I mean, maybe that comes back to the king of the incels thing because there's some (laughs) weird guys out there, you know, and I I find that quite... Hang on, what are you saying on air, Will? (laughs) You're like charmed by the incels? (laughs) No, what I'm saying is that there's no accounting for the the weirdos that people will end up following. Mm. And I think depicting him not as this kind of almost Byronic hero like he sometimes is depicted he's just a bit of a weirdo i mean of course these people haven't met him they're following him based on reputation I you know you're right. he, there aren't great tv interviews yeah. that he's doing in 1815 <laughs> so they, they're just following on reputation alone and the things mm. that they've read about him things that they've heard about him he's a great strategist yeah and people follow him into battle and he's a powerful man you know i wonder if historians are Rolling in their grave, is that the phrase for listening to our discussion, which I'm sure is not touching. Historians in their graves never miss <laughs> primal screen on Triple R. The place for history. <laughs> Look, my feeling is see it on the big screen. It's not worth seeing on the, on the little screen. <laughs> <laughs> and also it's at IMAX. We should mention this. I feel like there is something about 
just watching this on this massive screen. It is in 4K laser digital. It's pretty impressive um, for the visual storytelling. I think well worth seeing on a big screen, whether it's IMAX, whether it's at your local cinema, I think worth seeing. I'm sure I those battle it, scenes would play out really beautifully on IMAX. I can't remember the Is last... Is that a weird phrase for us to keep calling these battle scenes beautiful? Um, <laughs> I mean, they are beautifully composed. They you are, know? yes. I mean, they, they look like these kind of eras of this, you know, 17th, 18th century paintings. And we haven't even actually mentioned, and we probably don't have enough time to unpack this, but the costuming in this is exceptional. We mentioned the hat before. The hat's getting a lot of chat, but all of the costumes are really well done. And there's something about this film, and I feel like Scott is really angling for Oscar. This is like classic Oscar bait, but Mm. I don't know that it was there. I wonder when it comes around to award season whether it will pick up all the awards that Scott has kind of... I think it's a bit too weird for Oscars. See, I don't think it's weird enough. Really? But I do think it ticks a lot of Oscar boxes. It's historical drama. It's on the surface, important film. Yeah. And it's got some big names. Well, I think, again, that comes down to the marketing because that's what you're going in and expecting with Mm. that poster, that slogan and and that trailer that we just heard a bit of. (laughs) And then you get in there and you're like, what sort of film is this? Yeah. And then I started laughing. I was like, yeah. oh, actually, much more enjoyable than I expected. We should mention there are some great performances. I feel like the actors are all delivering. Rupert Everett, who comes in in the final final stages, I think it's worth seeing for his performance. I really got into that, I have to say. I mean, there's so many great British character actors that turn up. Rupert oh. Everett, Ian McNeese, yeah. uh, Mark Bonnar and, and Phil Cornwell, who's like, he turns up in Alan Partridge and in Napoleon, which is a strange crossover. There's a lot of great people in here. <laughs> Hang on. I just realised we have not made perhaps my biggest takeaway from this film. Well, I mentioned my frustration at the lack of specificity. Literally every person, regardless of what country they're from, has a British accent. Yes. Okay. What? Well, no, Phoenix has an American one. <laughs> they're all just using their natural accents. It's horrific. Right. I didn't know. Look, I did. I did struggle sometimes. Um, as I've said, I'm not Doctor History. So these guys are rolling onto the screen. I'm like, is this guy Russian? Is this yeah. guy English? Is I was he like, French? thank Christ for the flags. Like, I have no literally idea. Literally the only thing getting us through this. And I think I'm fine with that. I mean, <laughs> the alternative is comedy accents, I guess. Yeah. Or, you know, you could just do the right thing and hire an actual actor from that country. Right. And then he's doing a, he's a German. Subtitles. You know, that'd be subtitles. fine. We could do subtitles. People can read. I feel like oh, that's well, not the worst thing. <laughs> or just get Two someone and a half who hours and can is expect actually... them to be reading. <laughs> get, a, get a Russian, get a French. But I don't know. Anyhow, we could probably do another hour on this, but we're not going to. Uh... <laughs> You're in charge. <laughs> Napoleon is currently playing at all major and independent cinemas. Triple R. You may have enjoyed the Sparks special that we had a few weeks ago. And Cerise is going to be back on the airwaves next Monday talking all about Sparks. So make sure you tune into that. <laughs> Cancel Primal Screens. Sparks Hour. <laughs> Primal Sparks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 